Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm Anjay Anchevska filling in for your regular host, Michelle Batsis. Our guest today is Helen Williams, the Executive General Manager for Specialty Engineering at Systra Scott Lister. Hello, Helen, and thanks for being here. Hi, good afternoon. Delighted to be with you today. Uh, To start with, can you tell us about your current role in your key focus areas? Absolutely. That's a really good place to start because in my role title there, I look after a team called Specialty Engineering. And that's probably not clear to everyone uh, what's encompassed there. So in that stream, we bring together three closely related disciplines of systems engineering, safety assurance, and human factors. And the reason that we bring those together, it is all about systems thinking and systems engineering. And those are three parts of the puzzle that you need when you want to take a big picture view. So part of what those teams do is really try and work on, do we really understand what the challenge, what the problem, what the question is that you're being asked to solve before we dive into finding a solution? So it's about taking a holistic view. And when we talk about systems engineering, it's very much about understanding what emerges when you start bringing different parts of a solution or a system together and really asking about what we provide. Is it really going to answer the need that was posed in the first place? And is everything going to work together? And what's really, really key for me is that we include the human elements of that as well. So I'm very excited to have those areas together. So the role that I do in this organization is really putting a highlight and a spotlight onto those areas to make sure that it does through run through the DNA of everything that we do here at Sistra. Thanks, Helen. I think the conversations that I've been involved in transport recently very much have a focus more increasingly on a systems approach or an ecosystem or looking at problems holistically. So I'm very excited to learn more about your work. So can you tell us about your career path and how you ended up in your current position as a EGM specialty engineering at Systra? I certainly can. And I don't know if it's a place that I ever would saw myself ending up. I actually started out right back when I was studying. 
I studied aeronautical engineering. I absolutely loved everything about aircraft. That really excited me. I loved all the science subjects at school. And I also really got caught on the idea of joining the Air Force when I was back in the UK. I did join up. I sponsored through university and I had 12 absolutely fantastic and exciting years there. I did leave the Air Force uh, shortly after starting my family, so just over 20 years ago. And by that time, due to the type of work that I'd been doing there, I had got very involved in doing trials, test and evaluation. And that very neatly led into taking a real focus on safety and safety assurance, which then really is the way that my career tracked on. I worked as a a consultant in the UK. I ran my own business, very small business, but it was mine, which was very exciting back in the UK. And I came over to follow up opportunities here in Australia about 12 years ago. I moved across to what was Railcorp at the time in New South Wales. Very, very exciting opportunity to come across. I knew absolutely nothing about rail when I came over. I knew quite a lot about safety and I knew quite a lot about managing and leading teams, but nothing about railways. So I learned it all while I was here. I did go back to university in my time here in Australia to learn more about railway signaling and telecommunications. For me personally, I wasn't comfortable working in the safety aspects of the railway without a deeper understanding of some of the core safety systems. Now, I would never put myself forward as being an expert in any of those rail disciplines, uh, but I certainly increased my level of understanding dramatically. I then worked my way through various very interesting roles at Railcorp, Sydney Trains, uh, moving between the safety and the engineering teams, uh, moved into transport for New South Wales, and then the opportunity came up for me at the right time to take on a role in private industry over in the consultancy. And I was very keen having been government side for a long time is actually to take a different angle and a different perspective and actually to be on the the delivery side and in the private sector and see how the world looks like from this angle. One of the things that always stands out about public transport careers is how diverse they can be. And it sounds like your journey is no exception. Something that jumped out at me when I looked at your bio, uh, and you just touched on it now, is the fact that you did spend a significant amount of time as an engineering manager in the Royal Air Force in Britain. I was a military brat. My dad had a 20-some-odd-year career in the Air Force. I do have a big affinity for military personnel. Can you share with us some of the insights into how that experience shaped you professionally? Yes, because I think it did have a big impact on me in so, so many ways. One of the aspects is the amount that you move around. So Mm. like yourself, actually, I I did grow up in a a military family as well. So right from an early age, I'm used to making major changes every two or three years Mm -hmm. and moving around. And that does instill in you some very uh, good practices and some great skill sets about being able to move into quite significantly different jobs every couple of years and bringing yourself back up to speed, learning what the role is, learning what your accountabilities are and trying to bring a fresh 
fresh aspect into that role every couple of years and continuing learning and changing and continually having to build new relationships and re-establish old ones. So that's a really, really good side to it. I guess the converse side to that is keeping your interest and your attention levels up when you're used to making changes quite often. Mm. And I do find that, you know, I do have to be constantly looking at the role and the job that I'm doing. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm skipping jobs every couple of years, but I do find the need to evolve the job that I'm in and to make sure that it doesn't stay static and that it changes and that it has new challenges in it. But I certainly think it's made me open to movement. And I think the other point I'd bring through is the training that you get in the military. And I'm very sure it's the same over here with the Defence Force. The training you get in engineering and the technical areas is absolutely second to none. So that grounding that you have, what you learn about management, what you learn about leadership, and then you get the opportunity to apply it. Because, you know, whatever you you learn in the textbooks and in the classroom, it's getting out there and the opportunity to go and test it out and try it out in practice. And you do get thrown right in there and, and get the chance to back it up with some experience and to make some mistakes, which yeah. I did plenty of. Thank you for that honesty. And I think the resilience factor is something that I can very much resonate with with those moves every some odd years. But I never quite put my finger on the, uh, the converse side of that, which you are absolutely right. When you have that expectation that things are going to change drastically in your life, uh, you know, every few years you do develop, I guess you, you might have a tendency to develop a little bit of um, boredom with whatever it is that you're doing because of that change. But we are very glad that you brought your expertise to the public transport sector here in Australia. Uh, So since joining public transport, you've worked across many arms of the sector from operator to authority and now the consultancy space. What has that experience taught you about getting all of the various stakeholders to work together to achieve best outcomes for the communities that we serve? I've actually been very lucky to have been able to move in through the different areas. And I feel when I look back on it, you know, it was like a circle opening wider and wider, you know, and each time discovering that there was a whole additional world and perspective out there. So working on the operator side and, you know, eternally grateful for the many people who took time out to show me how does a public transport network actually work? So all the different aspects of running that business. And yeah, you you live very much in the here and now, in the, the day of operations side of it and understanding how it works and what are all the different roles that come together and what matters to people. And then when I moved into the Transport for New South Wales side, to me, it, it was a real eye-opener just to see what else went on and went into to building the network that then others ran in the day-to-day and also for me what I saw day in day out was rail and the rail operations and then to see that that was all part of the bigger network and to understand that rail is one important cog in part of something bigger and and looking and starting to interact with the other modes of public transport. I think what I 
found there as well is I am I am an absolutely massive advocate of public transport. I think it's absolutely core for growing our communities, you know, for growing the the economy, for connecting people, for placemaking. All these things we talk about are very real and it is very relatable when I, I live and work here in Australia. But also understanding that public transport also needs to interact with other types of transport. So I very much had a rail focus and getting to see that there was more to it than that was really, really good. So it does bring in for me, and I guess it's why I really enjoy having a team that that focuses on that, that systems engineering and that kind of holistic aspect is bringing in those different perspectives. And particularly when you're working on a project, is try to understand, you know, what you're what you've been tasked with delivering in the scope you've been given is understanding that that doesn't finish at the day that you hand over whatever it is you've been creating, be it a, a system, um, be it some new technology, be it some new assets, some infrastructure, is understanding who is going to use it and what's important to them and what are their priorities and everybody who's going to have to interact for the next however many years. And that was a really interesting for me to see that. What I've also found really interesting is moving from just working within one state. Mm. So I really only knew anything about transport in New South Wales. And also for a long time, I only really had visibility of primarily what goes on around the big city, around the metropolitan and really in the places where where I lived and worked. So it's been really good to broaden that out and to understand that different communities have different needs as well and to start to understand what the needs are in different places, different types of communities and what's going on in the other states as well. That's why I feel like this concentric circle building out and out and out Mm. Um, and seeing what more is going on. And for me now, being part of what's um, a, a global company, albeit with an ANZ arm, that's, again, that's another perspective I'm starting to get to see is what goes on in the rest of the world as well. And how can you bring that to play where you are today? Absolutely. It's um, undoubtable that um, different perspectives at the table lead to better outcomes. I don't have to look far to find statistics that show that engineering, uh, like many other fields, we still have a way to go to achieve gender balance. So maybe we'll have a bit of your reflections on this. At present, only about 14% of the engineering workforce in Australia is female. Do you think this is because there's not a lot of exposure to actually what engineering is and the possibilities that one could do with such an education? Yes, I think there are many, many, many reasons. And I do think that's a big part of it, really, is I don't think as an industry yet we've got good enough at showing the variety of careers that are open to people. Yes, there's the very core engineering disciplines, um, the very traditional ones, which, of course, are incredibly valuable still. But I don't think we we show always what a, a high tech and innovative industry public transport 
can be. Mm. And I certainly find that as we start to have engagement with, you know, some of the universities, some of the interns and graduates, still now encountering people who didn't know that there's a place perhaps for for people in, you know, from backgrounds of some of the more IT disciplines, some of the mechatronics, some of the control systems cybersecurity, and that there are many, many fields of engineering and science as well that, that are highly relevant. I would say it's how far back are we reaching, though, because even by the time we engage with the universities, you know, a lot of the females aren't there in those courses to start mm. with. So mm. I would really um, you know, especially having, I was going to say two teenage girls, but they're a little older than that now. But having two girls myself, it's really promoting it even further back before some of those choices are made about what subjects to study in year 11 and 12. And I don't know that many females are aware that there are other routes into engineering and into technical disciplines you know, it doesn't have to be the graduate and the degree route, but some of the modern day apprenticeships and other routes into these technical areas. Um, I do think we need to be reaching back and, and inspiring girls into STEM careers a little bit earlier. Absolutely agree. I think when I was growing up, I had a very narrow view of what a career path was. You were either a doctor, a lawyer, or a teacher. I didn't even know much about engineering and what they did or what they could do, but I do have a four-year-old daughter. I see that she's very prone to trying to figure out how things work and tick, and I'll definitely be advocating something in STEM for her. And I hope that hearing your story gives some of our listeners the confidence to pursue their dreams in whatever field they desire. Continuing this theme of gender equality, what do you think the public transport industry could do to attract and retain high caliber female leaders, particularly female engineers, and maybe as a bit of a follow on, working in a male dominated field, first with transport and then with the engineering, what tactics have you adapted to make sure that your talent is recognized and treated fairly? There is a lot to unpack there in that question. So, so how do we attract more people? I'm going to start some of the basics really is even how we talk about engineering, you know, and this, this, this works for, for everybody regardless of, of the demographic. And I think we should have more pride in engineering and, and the engineering profession. And we should unapologetically shout out about being engineers and being proud of it and embracing the variety of activities that the engineering and the type of thinking mindset that engineering brings. So that would be one starting point. I do think there are still a number of changes that can be made. In my own experience, some of the changes that work best are making some of the changes to working arrangements and to the work-life balance and to the workplace culture that benefit everybody. But they will often bring particular benefits and make it more attractive to females. And so, you know, some of these is great inroads being made in it already. So more flexible work time arrangements, which I think many groups were well on that pathway already. And obviously the, the times we've lived through with COVID 
and the, the adjustment to remote working has really accelerated the need to become more outcomes focused in, in a number of careers and the ability to make many more roles flexible. But that's something that brings advantages, I think, for everybody in the workforce. But it's certainly um, for females removes some of the barriers. And, you know, I touched on, you know, it's not just about the flexibilities and the arrangements. It's about having inclusive cultures in the workplace. And that will attract, but probably more importantly, it will retain some more of our, our females, I think. We do get very hooked on that statistic, about the 14%. I hear it a lot, which is a shame because it means it also hasn't changed that much in the last few Mm. years. But do we also look at retention? You know, it's one thing to look at, are we growing the pipeline of females? Are we attracting them into the roles? But are we keeping them? Um, And when people move around or leave, sadly, sometimes leaving engineering completely, do we really listen to why you know when we do exit interviews when we understand why people are leaving do we properly listen to somebody's reason for why and what was not working for them so culture is a big big factor these days so I'd say we've still got a little way to go on that one but again it's something that benefits absolutely everybody I think part of the other thing you said you know how do I understand that my talent is recognized and how to be treated fairly. One of the things I think that's important is to actually understand what your strengths and what your talents are and a certain amount of of self-awareness and gathering feedback from others because it's one thing to be recognized for hard work and to get success through hard work and having a good work ethic, that's really good. But I think it's important for people to ask themselves if there's concern that your talent isn't being recognized is do you actually know what your talent and what your strengths are so that you can actually put them forward and look for the right roles where you get to exercise it yourself. So, you know, everything in life has two sides to it. And I've certainly been there in positions in my career when you think, you know, hang on, I don't think what I do is getting fully recognized here. And then you do have to turn it on yourself and you say, well, are you actually focusing on what it is that you're good at? And could you explain that to others? And what is it that you want to be known for? I like that, taking ownership of that conversation. Another topic was related, but something that we do get a lot of feedback on from our listeners is about how some of them feel reluctant to promote their achievements, despite how significant and obvious they are. So, Helen, I'm going to ask you to brag a little bit about yourself. Can you please tell me and our listeners about a project that you've worked on at any point in your career that you're most proud of? Do you know what? And that is always a hard question. And one (laughs) of the reasons I think that it's a hard question as well is because most of the successes that you have, you haven't done alone. You've played a part in something. So I was thinking about this, anticipating that you may ask me something like this. It's a very common job interview question, isn't it? (laughs) And, you know, when you think, oh, well, when I say this out loud and someone else listens, I'll say, no, hang on, that was my project. That's why it does make it quite challenging. But I am going to tell you, I'm going to take a little bit of poetic license 
And when you talk about project, I'm not going to actually talk about an end deliverable that was actually produced. Because when I think about it, one of the things that I'm actually most proud of is not delivering a piece of infrastructure or being part of a a new train delivery. It's about actually growing teams and capabilities so that we can do that well. And particularly Mm. when I've worked in the public sector. And so one of the activities I look back on with, with great pride is in my time within Transport for New South Wales, when we were embracing uh, working within a, a matrix structure and very much building up centres of excellence and building up technical and human-centred um, centres of excellence to then supply that expertise across to a wide variety of projects. There are many operating models for organisations. Um, they all have their pluses and minuses. This one was the route that we were going down. But it's one thing to have the concept that this is going to be your operating model, and it's another thing to make it work. So that was a really, really interesting phase in my career for me, is to take an operating model that wasn't fully working and that was causing frustration and sometimes discord and sometimes inefficiencies for all parties. So to start to understand, and this comes back to taking lots of different people's perspective, what does it mean if you are one of those pools of experts that's going to be deployed out? What are your needs? What are the needs of the receiving, you know, effectively the client? and to be able to look at both parties' worries and concerns, to listen to them, and to really understand what is the value add of building teams of capabilities, and then how do you actually build both the the structure, the enablers, the supporting mechanisms, and I'm going to throw that word in again, the right culture for those to operate effectively. And so I've got to say that's one piece I'm really, really proud of is where obviously, you know, with with myself as the leader of that team, but working so closely both with the other leaders in my team and the leaders around me and with our client groups is to find a good, effective way forward and by listening to each other and by instilling new attitudes and new ways of working and I think a new mutual respect between groups so I'm going to call that out as one of the successes and also something that I really really enjoyed doing. Thanks for sharing that Helen I appreciate you taking us in a different direction with that answer it's really inspiring to hear how meaningful your work is to you and I'm sure that's inspiring someone listening with us right now In that response, you did mention leadership. So let's focus on your leadership style. Can you describe for us your your leadership style and why it has worked for you so far? Yes, that's a really good follow-on because part of the reason I took that last question in a different direction is because when you ask the question of what does it mean to be a leader and, you know, one of the aspects I try to embrace is that you know being a leader you are you are there to set a direction and 
you are also there to create the space and to clear the barriers to enable others to be able to fulfill their role and to fulfill their potential. So I don't hit it perfect every time, but that is what I try to see my role as a leader to be is I am there to create the space to let people do their role. And certainly at the moment, I work in a consultancy business and, you know, our main commodity is people. So my role is to make sure that we have a direction to go in and that we look after our resource, which is our people. I think I am a very people-centric leader. I think my success comes quite a lot in trying to make time for people and to listen to them and to try and understand what it is that they need from me um, and the ability to to have honest two-way conversations. I think for me, as I've gone along the journey, what I found important was to accept, although you then get that title of being a leader, is not to be shy of moving in and out back through different roles. Even as a leader, sometimes you do have to roll your sleeves up and actually do. Mm. And also moving in and out between being a leader and actually being a manager Mm. and much closer and much more hands-on. And I think when I was first introduced to leadership or when you go on a course, you're shown it as you progress from one to the next. You know, you look, how do you manage people? How do you manage a function? You know, how do you lead a business line and moving from manager to leader? And it's shown very much as a linear progression. And I don't think it is. Like anything, it's recursive. You dip in and out according to the need. And again, I hate to bring the pandemic into every conversation, but that's been really apparent as we've been through the last 18 months. Whilst we don't want to take our eyes off the long term, there have been periods here where the short term is what really matters. And coming back to being a day-to-day manager for your team has actually what's been needed at a point in time. And it's okay to do that and accepting that. Those are great attributes to have. I wrote something down here. You said earlier that one of the questions was a job interview question. I think for this response, this is probably <laughs> a, a best practice res- uh, you know, response. And I've written that down for myself. You know, what is a leader? Someone who sets direction and creates space for others to fulfill their potential. So uh, listeners, you have then a gem straight from Helen. My next question is about career planning. And this is something that we ask all of our guests. And this is how do you prefer to make career choices? Do you have a five to 10 year plan or do you embrace the opportunities as they present themselves, which has been my approach so far? Yes, I have to say it's a mix of both. I'm so glad you admitted that Sometimes it's just the right (laughs) opportunity comes at the right time. When I get an opportunity, I write down all the pros and cons and then I go with my gut to a certain Mm. extent. I think for me, sometimes it's a bit of a reverse career planning. As I go through, I get quite clear on what I don't want to do. You know, I see certain types of roles that come up and I can already see, yes, that's appealing. It would be a career progression, but it doesn't actually play to my strengths. And also it 
doesn't excite me when I'm making my career choices I do need to have something that's got an element of growth in it I do need to have something that is enough of a challenge that it scares me a little bit okay quite a lot really so I do need to challenge myself but I do also love being that open to the opportunity and the unexpected and I love being open to opportunity because sometimes an opportunity just validates that actually I'm in the right place at the moment Mm. because having an opportunity and having options I do like to validate you know I'm not here because I don't have any other choices I like to be able to look at something else and go yet you know what that's really good but I'm loving where I'm going right now so I do like to have a good look I think something I find quite hard to take on myself even though it's advice I'm always giving to other people you know and I'm always saying if someone taps you on the shoulder um, and says hey look I think you should give this a go I think you could do it I think you could be really good at it I'm always saying people "Well, well listen they've seen something in you that perhaps you haven't recognized in yourself yet always at least go and look at those opportunities that's advice that's really very easy to dispense it's not always so easy to to apply to yourself sometimes to be brave but I I do like to give it good consideration so no I don't know exactly where I'm going to be in five to ten years all I do know is I will have to be doing something where I enjoy the culture of where I work where I enjoy being around the people that I'm working with and working for I will have to feel that I'm adding value to the world. And obviously public transport's fantastic for that. And I have to have that little bubble of excitement when I get up in the morning that I want to get up and I want to do this job. It's always fascinating to hear people's response to that question. And that's the beauty of interviewing so many different female leaders. Even though we all work in the same sector, everyone does have a unique approach. And um, I hope that means someone listening finds some pearls of wisdom to take away with them each and every time that they join us. Helen, this leads me to my final question for you today. And this one is aimed at some of the people just starting out in public transport. And that is what career advice do you have for them that we might not have already covered today? I think one of the things I would say is do constantly think about your motivation and your why for being there. And do you understand the outcome of of what you're doing? And can you see how it contributes to something bigger? Because that's really important about staying motivated and, and staying interested is can you see the value in what you do and how it adds to things? I would also say don't be you know, don't be shy of looking around for what else you need. So one of the things I would say to people is don't be shy of reaching out for help. If you're looking ahead and plotting out where you would like your next move to be or where you would like to learn more about, don't be shy of going and asking for that. What I find is that, you know, if you've shown an interest in somebody else's Uh, field of expertise or where they work, they are generally only more than delighted to give their time to you. 
because you know certainly what I found in public transport you know the more you understand about someone else's role the better you can interact with them or achieve outcomes with them so if you're genuinely interested people will give generously of their time and it's a great way to develop new skills it's also a great way to see other career pathways that are there and to understand if it's something that you would like to move into and what else would you need to develop or learn about to get there so constantly reaching out to others I don't think I've ever reached out to someone to say, can you help? Can you explain something? Can you get me a visit here? Can you show me this? And ever been given the answer, no. And I would say definitely build those connections and maintain those connections. If you're on projects, if you're in jobs and there are teams and there are people you work well with, you know, as you move onwards, try and find ways to keep those connections and those relationships alive. I love the network of contacts. I just hesitated over the word there because, you know, a lot of these people are now so much more than contacts. You know, they're friends. These people that you've developed and grown up with in your career, they're the people that you, you pick up the phone to. We might all be in different companies now. We might, some of us have moved on to different industries. But having that, that network of people that, that you trust, um, you know who's got what expertise and experience and that you can pick up the phone and talk to is absolutely invaluable. So invest the time in relationships because they they pay you back twofold, I'd say. That's excellent advice, Helen, especially because our industry is so full of passionate professionals and you are absolutely correct. It's very rare that someone will say no. Before we sign off, do you have any final words or stories or even mantras for our audience? I'm big on mantras, so that's why I've thrown that one in. <laughs> I think one of the things I would just say when we talk about leadership, I was told something very, very early on, is that every time you interact with another person, it's in your hands to either raise or lower their self-esteem. I love that. I've heard it in different variants, but I think it's something really important to hold on to and just to think of the, the power of the interactions that you have with other people. I love that. And I think my self-esteem has been raised from this interview. So we're going to wrap it up. Helen, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. We really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. That was Helen Williams, the Executive General Manager of Specialty Engineering at Sistra Scott Lister. I'm your guest host, Andre Anchevska. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you for listening to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. This series is produced by Dylan Adler with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Thanks for joining us as we profile women working in public transport and sustainable mobility and inspire the next generation of female leaders. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving. <laughs>